Okay. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. Uh, I'm Doug Taylor, and welcome back to everyone. Uh, before we get started, we want to make sure that there aren't any outstanding questions, either left over from uh, our class last week or any others that might have cropped up during the week. And I don't see anyone racing for their keyboard, so if there are questions uh, as we go along, uh, please let me know, and uh, we'll try to cover those. Where we're picking up is with the story of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, for those of you that were able to join us last week, uh, we covered a section of that story, uh, and we're looking into that in some depth and finding out the huge amount of uh, wisdom and insight that uh, is contained in that story that's so very easy to gloss over uh, if we don't pay careful attention to some of the details in the text, and particularly some of the details that may not necessarily make sense to us. A couple of things that we uh, discovered uh, last week was we began asking questions uh, about um, why Joseph accused his brothers of being spies and why he was uh, treating them harshly and why he seemed to be focused on wanting to bring his brother Benjamin, or their brother and his brother Benjamin, uh, back. Why he put money in their sacks, and a number of other things in the story that uh, didn't seem at first blush to make a lot of sense. And what we worked out from that, and again, I need to emphasize that the ideas that I'm presenting uh, with regard to this story both last week and this week uh, I received uh, from primarily from Rabbi Reuben Mann, who is uh, a rabbi in Plainview, New York, uh, who teaches at Yeshiva B'nai Torah, uh, is the rabbi for uh, a congregation in uh, Plainview, also teaches uh, at the Masoret uh, Torah School for Women in Far Rockaway, New York. Uh, and I got a lot of this from some tapes that he has made on this, uh, this is one of his uh, favorite stories. He got a number of the ideas from uh, Rabbi Israel Chait uh, over the years, and he's also developed uh, some of these himself. So uh, you're getting a combination of uh, the thinking of two uh, uh, very great scholars. Uh, Terry Lauren, I noticed you said, what was the coat of many colors? Was this the same coat uh, as Adam had? I don't know the history on the coat, but what Apparently, we can glean from, at least from the story, and I'd have to dig in uh, to the commentators a little bit uh, with regard to the question about um, uh, Adam, is uh, that the coat was very nice and indicated some special favoritism of Jacob toward Joseph. And his brothers, you know, very surely picked that up, and, uh, you know, Joseph... Uh, certainly, I think, we, as best we can tell from the story, uh, uh, kind of um, acted in that fashion, had a bit of a problem uh, or an issue with regard to, uh, you know, thinking himself to be special. Uh, and so there was some real animosity uh, between the brothers uh, over that. And... Um, 
And you're right, Terry Lori, he was in the pit and did not get bitten uh, from snakes and scorpions. So a lot of things uh, happening there. But as you know, the brothers sold him off to be a slave in Egypt. He ends up working uh, for a man and becomes uh, head of that man's um, uh, whole uh, estate. Uh, then the wife tries to seduce him. He uh, rejects that. She ends up accusing him of trying to uh, molest her. He ends up being thrown in prison. Uh, the prisoners with him uh, have dreams, and that ends up laying the groundwork for Joseph to be pulled out of prison when Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret uh, and is able to uh, then establish himself where he is established as the number two guy in Egypt uh, when the famines are coming. And it's when those famines occur that the brothers come looking for food, and that's when Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And this whole drama begins to unfold. Um, so uh, uh, that's kind of what we're going through. And let me just stop and, and look at the comments. Um, not certain, Mona, that there necessarily is a connection between the coat of many colors and the priestly garments. Uh, again, I'd have to dig into the history on that garment. Uh, so I'm not at, at a place where I could comment on that. And uh, Kathleen, not sure what your what your comments are referring to there. So if you if there's a question there, I'd need a little bit uh, more information. One of the things that we gleaned out of the story is that. Joseph has clearly set this whole thing up for a reason. I mean, he's not just doing this whole business just to get back at his brothers, but there is something uh, clearly going on. Uh, he remembered the dreams uh, from his childhood, and what he's doing is he is recognizing uh, that there's some uh, chuva that needs to happen, some repentance that needs to occur here. And he is setting up a situation to give both his father and his brothers an opportunity to either repent or find out if they have repented uh, over the way that they treated uh, Joseph. And so he's, he's basically got them off balance. Uh, he's doing things like putting them in jail for three days, telling them that he'll keep them all and send one home. And then he lets them out of jail after three days and says, okay, you, you can all go, but one of you stay. And so he psychologically got the brothers off balance and has planted the money in the sacks in order to set up a situation where Joseph or Jacob is going to have to send Benjamin back to Egypt and, or to Egypt for the first time. And that it is a potentially dangerous situation. Not just, okay, this is a trip, but, you know, this is a guy and we've got a serious uh, situation happening. Um, and uh, so Jacob was going to have to be faced with the possibility of losing Benjamin. Because as you may recall, Joseph and Benjamin were... Uh, the only sons that Jacob had with Rachel. And Rachel was the wife that he uh, had a very special relationship with. And so those children would naturally be special to him. Um, so 
And Linda, you asked, wasn't he trying to see that his dreams were fulfilled? My understanding is that more that he remembered the dreams after he became in the position of number two guy in Egypt, when his brothers showed up, and he began to understand uh, and but, you know possibly got this through prophecy, what he was supposed to do uh, during this particular time. Uh, and Pamela, you mentioned that uh, you had read that Esau had uh, killed for this coat as it belonged to Nimrod. I, I am not familiar with the history on the coat, so would have to, uh, we'd have to go back in the, the commentators and uh, dig a little bit on that. What I hope you all had an opportunity to do was to look at the section we were going to cover this week, and there's two parts to it. Um, and it's, the first starts in uh, chapter 43, verse 15, and goes through to 44:17. And I'd like to read that and ask you all to think, again, as we're reading, what are the questions that come to your mind as we read this? What's unusual about this story? What, what jumps out at you as not something that you would necessarily expect? So we left off last time that Jacob had directed the brothers to take some uh, small gifts back uh, to Joseph and to take Benjamin, and if he was going to lose his children, then he would lose them. Let me read the section, and then we'll talk about it. The brothers took the gift and also brought along twice as much money as was needed. They set out with Benjamin and went to Egypt. Once again, they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the overseer of his household, Bring these men to the palace. Butcher an animal and prepare it. These men will be eating lunch with me. The man did as Joseph said, and he escorted the brothers to Joseph's palace. When the men realized that they were being brought to Joseph's palace, they were terrified. They said, We're being brought here because of the money that was put in our packs the last time. We will be framed and convicted. Our donkeys can be confiscated. And we can even be taken as slaves. When they were at the door of Joseph's palace, they went over to the overseer and spoke to him. If you please, sir, they said, we originally came down to buy food. Then, when we came to the place where we spent the night, we opened our packs and each man's money was at the top of the pack. It was our own money and its exact weight. We have brought it back with us. We've also brought along other money to buy food. We have no idea who put the money back in our packs. Everything is fine as far as you are concerned, replied the overseer. Don't be afraid. The God you and your father worship must have placed a hidden gift in your packs. I received the money you paid. With that, he brought Simeon out to them. The man brought the brothers into Joseph's palace. He gave them water so they could wash their feet and had fodder given to their donkeys. They got their gifts ready for when Joseph would come at noon since they heard that they would be eating with him. When Joseph arrived home, they presented him with the gifts they had brought. They prostrated themselves on the ground to him. He inquired as to their welfare. Is your old father at peace, he asked. Remember, you told me about him. Is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is at peace, they replied. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He said, this must be your youngest brother about whom you told me. To Benjamin he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph rushed out. His emotions had been aroused by his brother and he had to weep. He went to a room and there he wept. He washed his face and came out. Holding in his emotions, he said, serve the meal. 
Joseph was served by himself and the brothers by themselves. The Egyptians who were eating with them were also segregated. The Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, since this was taboo to the Egyptians. When the brothers were seated before Joseph, they were placed in order of age, from the oldest to the youngest. The brothers looked at each other in amazement. Joseph sent them portions from his table, giving Benjamin five times as much as the rest. They drank with him and became intoxicated. Joseph gave his overseer special instructions. Fill the men's packs with as much food as they can carry, he said. Place each man's money at the top of his pack. And my chalice, the silver chalice, place it on top of the youngest one's pack, along with the money for his food. The overseer did exactly as Joseph instructed him. With the first morning light, the brothers took their donkeys and were sent on their way. They had just left the city and had not gone far when Joseph said to his overseer, Set out and pursue those men. Catch up with them and say to them, Why did you repay good with evil? It's the cup from which my master drinks, and he uses it for divination. You did a terrible thing. The overseer caught up with them and repeated exactly those words to them. They said to him, Why do you say such things? Heaven forbid that we should do such a thing. After all, we brought you back the money we found at the top of our packs all the way from Canaan. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of us has it in his possession, he shall die. You can take the rest of us for slaves. It should be as you declare, he replied, but only the one with whom it is found will be my slave. The rest will be able to go free. Each one quickly lowered his pack to the ground, and they all opened their packs. The overseer inspected each one, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. The chalice was found in Benjamin's pack. The brothers tore their clothes in grief. Each one reloaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's palace, he was still there. They threw themselves on the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What did you think you were doing? Don't you realize that a person like me can determine the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord, replied Judah? How can we speak? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our old guilt. Let us be your slaves, we and the one in whose possession the chalice was found. Heaven forbid that I do that, said Joseph. The one in whose possession the chalice was found shall be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. And I should point out that I'm reading from the Living Torah, translated by Rabbi uh, Arya Kaplan and published by Mazname Publishing Company. Okay, so questions. What questions come to mind as we look at that section of the story? Okay, Pamela, good. The brothers being placed in order of age. What's that about? Why was that done? Good question. What else? Any questions we can think of about this story? Things that may seem odd or unusual or that don't make sense. Linda, very good. Why did Benjamin get five times as much? Yes, Terry and Laurie, exactly. Why did they give him five times the food? And, and by the way, does that mean that the brothers didn't get enough to eat? Or that Benjamin got like five times more stuff than he can eat? You know, what's, what's up with that? Okay, good. Anything else?
How did Judah become the spokesman? Very interesting question, Mona. Thank you. And the Egyptians not eating with Hebrews, as there was only Jacob's family. Okay? And Pamela, my understanding, and I don't know all the details on that, is that the Egyptians, uh, somehow there was sort of a segregationist thing that went on between them, apparently because of what they ate or the way they ate, uh, so that the Hebrews would not eat with the Egyptians. Okay, very good questions. Let me suggest some others uh, in addition to those. And then I'll hold up for just a second because it looks like you're about to pin one more into the screen. Okay. First of all, why did Joseph bring them all home for a meal at all? Um, I mean, he didn't have to do that. Uh, so let's let's think about that one. How about this? Why did the servants say that they'd received their money? They knew he hadn't gotten the money. And why did he say that your God and the God of your father has put a hidden treasure in your packs? Okay? That seems real odd and strange. Um, Ah, Linda, very good. Why did the brothers all return if they said only Benjamin or Benjamin was to be the slave? Okay? I think the answer to that one is they all felt like they better go back and face Joseph together because they wanted to be sure they could protect Benjamin. But it's a very good point, and we will, we will delve into that further here as we go. Another question. When the servant told them that they'd received the money, why did the brothers believe that? I mean, they knew he didn't get the money. So what's, what's happening there? And as several of you brought out, why did Joseph give Benjamin five times uh, as much food? Another one, why near the end does Judah say that God has uncovered the sin of your servants? And why does it tell us that the brothers became intoxicated? You know, it says they drank. And remember, there are no, no words in the Torah that aren't there for a purpose, so it must be telling us something. And you'll notice when they have to go back, they say, gee, he could take our donkeys. Like, well, why would they be so concerned about their donkeys? I mean, they're facing a huge problem right here. Why bring up the donkeys? Okay. And why is it that Joseph put the money back in their sacks again? And finally, why does Judah admit guilt? And I'm going to add one more. And that is in the latter part of the story, when the overseer comes back and talks about the chalice, and they open up the packs, do you notice nothing is mentioned about the money being there? It's all about the cup. Nothing said about the money. Okay. So let's see if we can postulate some answers to these. Um, What I want to do is jump around just a little bit. 
There is a section there about Joseph and his emotions. You know, when he sees his brother and he has to excuse himself and, and step out. The section about Joseph's emotions shows us that he was able to overcome them. Because if he hadn't, it would have destroyed the whole plan. The objective of, of study and learning and learning to use our minds is not to reach a place where we have no emotions. That's kind of an absurd thing. A human being is a creature of emotions, and he has to have emotional satisfaction. The way to happiness is when a person's emotional satisfaction is in line with his intelligence. So the fact that Joseph, in this case, had this emotion shows his perfection. In other words, he identified and had compassion with someone who had suffered, and yet he had the capacity to control it because if he hadn't, he would have blown the whole uh, deal that he was setting up, and that was more important than him expressing publicly what those emotions were. So he, he, had, he expressed his, his emotions, in a sense, with greatness in that he didn't allow them to spoil the plan, but he had the capacity to control them and take himself away and then express them in private where it was safe to do so, but not in a situation where, in terms of, of the, uh, uh, the, the big picture of what he was trying to accomplish, uh, that it would be uh, a problem and mess up the plan. An important element of perfection is our capacity to control our emotions. Now, the order of the brothers. Uh, the question was raised, what about the order of the brothers and, and what's that about? Rashi, uh, commentator Rashi, says that Joseph um, used the goblet, the chalice, to show that he can divine, that he can, you know, like uh, read beyond what's before him and, and get special information. Uh, so he put the brothers supposedly uh, in order through that, and that supposedly convinced them that he was able to divine. Although you could ask an interesting question. Why would it surprise them he knew what their ages were when he had Simeon with them there all the time? Remember, Simeon's been, you know, camped out uh, in prison, so to speak, um, in Egypt all this time that the brothers were away. Uh, and, again, why the gift to Benjamin five times, purpose of the seating arrangement. Um, I mean, Joseph could have planted something in Benjamin's sack without the whole dinner business. So it seems like he's operating in extremes. At first, the brothers are scared. Then they have this great party, and they're all, you know, relaxed. In fact, uh, and then they find the goblet in Benjamin's position, and they're scared. So what's going on with this? Um, and, and why did the brothers say that the one who is, has the goblet shall be killed? I mean, they said that because they were sure that none of them was a thief. I mean, they had total confidence that not one brother was a thief. So things were looking great, and then the servant comes along, the goblet's discovered, and everything looks disastrous. Okay, and again, note that there's no accusation uh, about the money. And Linda, you said, why was only Simeon left and not any of the others? That was the deal that they worked out the first time. 
uh, at first, all the brothers were going to be left, but then um, uh, the, uh, Joseph appears to have changed his mind, but that was a way to keep them psychologically off balance uh, in the first part of the story that we covered last week, in that he first said they'd all have to stay except one, and then after he let them sit in prison and think about that for about three days, then he brought them out and said, look, I'm a reasonable guy, you know, I need some security here, so let's just keep one brother, who happened to be Simeon, and he sent the rest away. So notice, too, uh, that it starts to talk about Judah and the brothers. Judah starts assuming a position of leadership. Okay, Judah says they're all guilty. And we could ask, well, why does he do that? I mean, he knows they're not guilty, because once you plead guilty, it's going to make it that much easier for Joseph to punish. So to understand the brothers' actions, we have to understand the strategy of Joseph. Joseph had two objectives from the time that the brothers returned. The first is he's trying to set up a situation where Benjamin was rejected and then see how the brothers would react. Okay. Joseph's objective was not just to eliminate the fear. His other objective was to show them that their entire outlook on the situation was completely wrong. So when they came back, Joseph's, objectives, Joseph's objective was to get them to think that their worst fears were totally unfounded. Remember, they came back, you know, because the money had been in their packs the first time, so when they returned to Egypt, they're like expecting, you know, the worst. He's trying to make them think, oh, everything is just fine. He's aiming to produce a situation where they would not only cease fearing Joseph, but they would have total confidence in him, so they wouldn't think he was doing anything duplicitous. And so to get their trust, he first has to heighten their fears. So he's playing a psychological game with them, essentially, or playing with their psyches. Um, and so the part about the donkeys is not that there's so much worrying about the donkeys, but they're realizing, guys, this is the type of ruler who could take everything from us. Then the servant invokes, uh, you know, says, God gave you a gift. You know, your money came to me. Now, Rabbi Mann's interpretation is that he didn't mean this literally, but that what he said was, essentially, look, you know, we got people coming in and out of this country all the time, we're dealing with lots of people with food. We're dealing with millions, if we put it in our currency, millions of dollars. So you guys are the lucky ones. Sometimes things work out, you know, not to worry. It's like you got the lucky break, you know, because we got lots of money changing hands and a few things get lost in the shuffle and you guys came out fine. And as far as I'm concerned, I got the money, okay? So this is kind of the beginning of the disinformation, if you will. The brothers are starting at this point to realize that all of their fears are not warranted. And maybe everything is fine. So then Joseph has a meal with them to make them feel relaxed. Yeah, he may have to be tough on his country, but he's a likable guy. And the meal is kind of to make it up to them. And so now, you know, think of, you were really worried about this situation that you came into. Now all of a sudden, hey, there's no problem about the money. Come on over for lunch. Sit down in my house. 
Imagine now how you're going to feel about this guy. And so now their idea about Joseph is being transformed. Gee, he's so gracious and he sees him and he's respectful, you know, and so on and so forth. The seeding is a sign of respect and dignity. Okay? He gets them seated properly in order, and that's a sign by Joseph of respect to the brothers. So all this is building up, and you know, if we think about our own personal experiences, when you're suspicious about somebody, but you're not sure, then you have a certain amount of guilt along with that. You feel bad because you suspect them. Then, when you find out they're wonderful, you have a lot of guilt that you ever suspected them in the first place. So, this is happening with the brothers around their feelings about Joseph. And they've reached a point where they're so relaxed and unguarded that they feel like, oh, this guy's a great friend. So they drink with him. And they kind of go to the other extreme. Now they have total confidence. And now they can drink to the point where they get intoxicated. Um, so this is a setup by Joseph so that when the servant comes along and says that one of them has stolen the cup, they never considered the possibility that Joseph had set this up. And they knew that none of them was a, none, not one of them was a thief, so they made the statements that they did. They'd been sort of, their guard had been relaxed. Okay? Now, the second objective was Benjamin. Joseph treated him differently. He gets a special blessing. He's put in a special place in the seating. He gets five times the food because... In order to effectuate the repentance in the brothers, he has to recreate the situation. He's playing to their unconscious. Joseph is duplicating the same situation of family brotherhood all over again, except he's kind of like the father figure. The brothers are all in order, and Joseph is recreating this same emotion of rivalry, of favoritism. Like, yeah, you're his youngest brother, he's going to get the most, he's going to get the blessing, you know, that sort of thing. So that then when Benjamin gets accused of stealing the goblet, the emotion of envy has been brought right up to the forefront. And then the question is, how will the brothers respond? Okay. Now let me pause. Uh, and uh, Mona, you really noted, uh, needed to know if their attitudes had changed since they betrayed him, if they would again betray Benjamin. Exactly. That's exactly what he's setting up here. And he's setting it up for Benjamin to be the favored one in Joseph's sight. You know, gee, the ruler of Egypt. We all did this work and came here the first time, but look who he's favoring, you know, the kid in the family. And so he's playing on that envy. Now, interestingly, uh, the Ramban, with regard to the money, the second time, the Ramban says... And did I lose my spot here? I think I did. Hang on just one second. Um, the Ramban indicates that Joseph um, gave them the money with their knowledge. Um, 40, 44. Yeah, that, um, and I'm reading from uh, uh, 
Nachmanides' commentary on the Torah, uh, that on the part where he instructs the servant to put every man's money in his bag's mouth, it says, that is, with their knowledge. For the house steward said to them, my Lord knows that he did you wrong and he now wishes to make amends to you. Okay. And if he would, if he would have done as he did the first time, that is, put the money in their bags without their knowledge, they would have had a defense in the manner of the goblet. That is, that the same thing you know, happened uh, to it as happened to the money. But it was done with their knowledge, which also explains why when the servant comes along and uh, uh, accuses them about the goblet, that no mention is made of the money. And the sacks all got open, and remember the money's at the top of the sacks. <clears throat> so they knew the money was there, apparently, but they did not know uh, the goblet was there. And again, that was part of the camouflage. Um, so that Joseph says, how could you do this, you know, how could you be repaying my gratitude like that? And then when the guilt is admitted, what, uh, what Rabbi Mann has suggested is they weren't admitting guilt, but there was no excuse to make because there was no explanation. And there was no explanation because this is all a frame-up. And they began to understand that something bigger was going on here, but they didn't know what it was. I mean, how could they defend? I mean, there's the chalice, and they've made that statement. So the, the, the setup now has, uh, has become complete, and now we get to find out how the brothers are actually going to react. Any questions about that section before we move on? Okay. Let's move to the very last section of this story, which I will quickly read uh, from 44.18 to 45.1. Judah walked up to Joseph and said, Please, Your Highness, let me say something to you personally. Do not be angry with me, even though you are just like Pharaoh. You asked if we still had a father or another brother. We told you we have a father who is very old, and the youngest brother is a child of his old age. He had a brother who died, and thus he is the only one of his mother's children still alive. His father loves him. You said to us, bring him to me so that I may set my eyes on him. We told you, the lad cannot leave his father. If he left him, his father would die. You replied, if your youngest brother does not come with you, you shall not see my face again. We went to your servant, our father, and told him what you said. When our father told us to go back and get some food, we replied, we cannot go. We can only go if our youngest brother is with us. If he is not with us, we cannot even see the man in charge. Your servant, our father, said, you know that my wife Rachel bore me two sons. One has already left me, and I assume he was torn to pieces by wild animals. I've seen nothing of him until now. Now if you want to take this one from me too, or now you want to take this one from me too, if something were to happen to him, you will have brought my white head down to the grave in evil misery. And now, and again this is Judah continuing to speak, when I come to your servant, our father, the lad will not be with us. His soul is bound up with the lad's soul. When he sees that the lad is not there, he will die. I will have brought your servant, our father's white head, down to the grave in misery. Besides, I offered myself to my father as a guarantee for the lad, and I said, if I, not bring it, if I do not bring him back to you, I will have sinned to my father for all time. So now let me remain as your slave in place of the lad. Let the lad go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the lad is not with me? I cannot bear to see the evil misery that my father would suffer. 
Joseph could not hold in his emotions. Since all his attendants were present, he cried out, Had everyone leave my presence? Thus no one else was with him when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. And I think you all know the rest of the story and how that goes on from there. So now let's pause and again ask, in that section of the story, what's odd, unusual? What raises questions in your mind? What doesn't make sense or doesn't seem to fit? Ah, oh, Linda, very interesting point. Why does Judah say this time Benjamin, his brother, is dead, but earlier his brother was lost? That's a great question. I'm not sure that I have a direct answer for that one, although it could be that the answer will come out in the final explanation here. So let's hold that thought. Any other questions that come to mind? Here are some to consider. What's all this stuff about divination for, anyway? I mean, when it says, you know, it's the chalice that my master uses for divination, why? What is all that for? I mean, a chalice is a chalice, or a cup is a cup. Why, why all that? Why doesn't Judah try to protest innocence? You'll notice that Judah never tries to say we're innocent here. And again, why the focus on the goblin? Okay. And why does Judas say, don't get angry? You notice at the beginning of his, of his plea to Joseph, he says, please, your highness, let me say something to you personally. Do not be angry with me, even though you're just like Pharaoh. Like, well, what's that about? Why would you, what are we, what can we glean from that? And Linda, you ask, why does Joseph have the room cleared at the very end? Uh, that one, I would have to guess, is because he wanted to have a personal reuniting with his brothers rather than having outsiders uh, in at that very, very sensitive family moment. Um, and Mona, we could think that some of this is fluff stuff, but I'm going to suggest an approach uh, that Rabbi Mann suggests that I think answers all these questions and gives us some very fascinating insight into uh, what's really going on underneath the text. So Judah um, I uh, didn't want to embarrass his brother's moan. I'm not sure what whether you're referring to what Linda suggested about having the room cleared or some other piece of that. Uh, so I'd need more information there. Judah makes a, a collective offer um, because he's obligated to bring Benjamin back home. But if they're all slaves, then he figured out that, he, or he thinks he can protect Benjamin, maybe work out a plan. Remember, they, they said, well, we'll just take Benjamin, but 
there's a collective offer to take everybody as slaves. Why would he do that? Because he's not going to abandon Benjamin. He's not going to let Benjamin just be by himself. He can't allow the, the brothers to be separated. He realizes there's no point in trying to plead innocence. So he makes an offer, but Joseph rejects it on the grounds of justice. He says, no, no, just, just the one. Um, so is this choice of a goblet significant? You know, um, he says it's the cup from which my master drinks and uses it for divination. Why mention the divination? I mean, it's stealing, okay, and it's kind of a chutzpah because it's a personal thing of significance, but what does it matter whether he divines with it or not? And Rashi says that Joseph used the cup, or made it look that way, uh, to divine their ages. Um, so let's, let's go on and see if we can figure out how this might all come together. The, the, let's look at the strategy of Judah at the, at the beginning of uh, verse 18. He approaches Joseph and asks permission to speak and says, please don't get angry with me for what I'm about to say. Now that is significant. And then what he does is he recounts a whole bunch of events that Joseph already knows. So why does he say that? And he finishes his, his preamble, his opening, but he doesn't just ask Joseph to let him go. It's not an appeal for mercy. He offers himself in place of Benjamin. Now, in one sense, it seems preposterous that he would make that proposal because Joseph already rejected keeping the entire family. I mean, Joseph said, I'm a man of justice, and the one who stole the goblet should be punished. So, and again, Judah's plea isn't for clemency here. It's to let Joseph take his place. So this part about don't get angry starts to come in to play. Here's, here's the explanation. Ah, Mona, thank you. Fluff mid diversion. Okay, no, I appreciate that. Joseph saw at the outset, after he began apparently to put it all together, he said, he realized, this thing is a frame-up. That's why he said, what can we say to my master? He, he couldn't argue. So it's either a frame-up, or the other possibility is that this is a political plot. Think about it. Egypt's a powerful nation. They've got all the food. All kinds of people uh, coming into uh, to try to get food. And Joseph's a powerful ruler. Now, sometimes powerful rulers set up a scapegoat and make a public example in order to discourage other people. So Judah first offers all the brothers, but, but Judah, Joseph rejects that. But now think about this. Isn't life imprisonment, you know, being a slave forever, a lot for stealing a cup? I mean, that's pretty harsh. But, see, it's the cup he drinks from and divines with. Divines me with it means it's part of his tool set for ruling the country, which now means you're talking about theft of, of an important piece of property of the state, something that could weaken the ruler. So now it's not just the case of a cup. 
this is a plot against the country. Okay? That's why Joseph would have demonstrated with it, with the order of the brothers at dinner, to build a case that the brothers had a plot against the country. Remember, the servant, when he comes to say, don't you realize that's the cup my master divines with? It's not like you just stole a drinking cup. It's you like stole something serious about the whole state of Egypt here. Okay? And remember, Joseph didn't want all the brothers. His agenda was to bring about repentance. So here's the plea of Judah. And there are two pleas going on at once here, starting in verse 18. One is spoken and one is unspoken. That's why he says, don't get angry. The mere fact I'm going to make this request to you indicates that I know this is a frame-up, but I can't say that to you directly. He can't say directly it's a frame-up. So the overt plea focuses on the relationship between Benjamin and his father. You know, can you have mercy for the father here? So why does Joseph go through the whole litany of telling, or Judah go through the whole litany of telling Joseph everything that he already knows? You know, and it's in order to tell Joseph very subtly, without doing it directly, that he knows this was a setup from the start. Why did you have to ask us all these questions? You know, you weren't asking to marry our daughters. Why did you need all this information? In other words, we know this is a plot. But I'm not going to come right up and accuse you of plotting against this. But I'm trying to tell you this subtly by repeating all these details that I know it's a plot. And then Judah makes his plea for mercy. Because you remember, back when they came, Joseph asked about the father. So that showed he all, he, that he had a soft spot for the father. So Judah comes up with this plan to plea and to present a solution that satisfies Joseph's needs. The unspoken political objective. Essentially, what Judah is saying is, look, Joseph, you and I both know this is a political thing, that this is a frame-up. You need someone to set up as a demonstration, you know, to, for the country as a scapegoat. So if I take his place, you can make me the scapegoat, and you'll save the father. Okay? It's a very brilliant plea, and brilliant in that it's said very, very subtly. In other words, um, you know, when he says God has done this, in other words, we must have sinned in our lives and God has brought this upon us, but I know that that's not your problem, Joseph. I understand and you understand this is a political thing. You have a country to run. Since we both know what the situation is, why can't you have mercy on the Father and let me take Benjamin's place? You'll get your needs satisfied for the country and we'll save our dad. Okay? Do you begin to see how brilliant Judah's plea is here. He's trying, he's willing to give up his own life, essentially, to save his father. Okay. Now, Moni asks, how could Joseph listen to his father being degraded? I don't think that in this case, his father, he's degrading his father. In fact, what I think he's doing is he's being, uh, I would interpret as being very respectful to his father, saying, look, my father's in this situation it is going to destroy him if we don't take this boy back to him. Would you please, for the sake of our father's life, let me take Benjamin's place? Um, and what was there in the plea of Judah that indicated a complete repentance? See, the sin of the brothers was their hatred of, of Joseph. 
But the brothers had already repented from the sin because they recognized the past. But repentance requires that we demand, sorry, that we um, overcome the emotion for the future. So they were all willing to be slaves. And the fact that they were all willing to be slaves, it indicated they got over the emotion because Benjamin was a substitute for Joseph. So what was lacking? There was one more piece. The essence of the whole thing seems to be, at the end here, about not causing the father pain. And a defect of Joseph was his excessive vanity. Remember the code and talking about the dreams of his brothers. The defect of Jacob was not controlling his emotion, his favoritism for Joseph. The sin of the brothers was their hatred of Joseph, but that's a little bit superficial because they really hated their father. See, they saw that the father favored others. And Rabbi Mann has said in his material that as, as a parent, you have a right to have a favorite, but you can't demonstrate it. A parent has to act fairly. Because the worst pain of a child would be to be envious that the parent favors another child. But if you're the child and you feel that, you can't really manifest the anger against the parent, so you blame it on the other child. And the brothers in this case did true repentance by giving up their own freedom to preserve the right of their father to have a favorite. So this illustrates the importance of justice in perfection. Justice demanded to Judah in this situation that he had to accept this. And Joseph had great compassion along the way, as we see, because he cried. And his real compassion in this case was to facilitate the repentance. And the last element of that was whether they accepted the right of their father to have a favorite. And that's what they did. Okay. So perhaps uh, Rabbi Mann has suggested that the most important theme here is that there is no such thing as a perfected person without repentance. There is no individual who is naturally perfected. And if, he, if a person can't do tshuva, can't do repentance, he can't be perfected. Repentance involves the ability to recognize that you've made a mistake and the capacity to actually make the changes. Some people think that if you suffer enough from guilt that you've done atonement, but that is not what this is about. That's a ridiculous notion. Guilt, and we talked about this earlier, remember the purpose of guilt is to prompt you to do an investigation to determine whether or not you've done the right thing. Guilt has played its role when it points out to you that you're engaged in something that you shouldn't be engaged in. Then the mind needs to take over because repentance can only take place in the mind. That's when we bring our intellect to the fore because the guilt is to prompt us to do the investigation. The investigation then is done with the intellect and the steps we need to take to overcome the emotions are done with our intellect. Okay, that is the story of Joseph and his brothers. There are undoubtedly uh, more points uh, deep into this story, but I wanted to at least share this much, much with you to give you a sense of how incredibly deep the Torah is and what levels we can go to 
by digging into the text and looking underneath the words to find out why were certain things said. Why is this story next to this story? Why is, for example, Judah saying, don't be angry with me? I mean, essentially he's saying, don't be angry with me because I'm about to tell you uh, something that, you know, uh, I want to tiptoe carefully about because I know you're framing me, but I can't come right out and say that. So please don't be angry with me as I say this. And here's the story and here's what I'm willing to do. So it's an amazing, uh, amazing story uh, with lots that we can learn. And again, you, you see the brilliance of the people involved the brilliance of Joseph in being able to set this up, the brilliance of Judah in being able to figure things out and to come back with an offer that very subtly, without coming at it directly, acknowledges what he thinks Joseph is trying to accomplish, which is to uh, you know, do a, a scapegoat for the country, and how he comes up with a solution to deal with that and at the same time uh, save his father. We also see when somebody raised a question about why does Judah get involved, you remember that Judah made an offer to his father Jacob, and so did Reuben. Reuben's offer was rejected because it was emotionally based. Judah's was uh, a, a wise and well thought through offer as far as taking Benjamin back. Again, Judah steps up to the plate here uh, with a very, very well thought out uh, idea and concept. Any questions that I can, uh, I can answer on this? Does this make sense to everybody? Wonderful. Well, this also, this ends not only um, our work together on the story of Joseph and his brothers, at least in this class, but it also ends this class, this is the uh, final chapter of Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. So I appreciate all of you uh, attending over the many weeks uh, and months that we've done this. It is just a, uh, a real delight to be able to share these ideas with you and an honor and a privilege to do so. And I thank you for uh, uh, joining with me in this journey. If you do have uh, any questions at any time, you are always welcome to email me at uh, Doug at thinkingdynamics.com. Uh, I'd be happy to uh, uh, try to uh, cover those for you. Um, uh, and Mona, I'm just checking over your comment. Uh, he'd been there so lost his son, so was able to put himself in Jacob's shoes, so to speak. Uh, that very well could be. Uh, very well could be. That's a very, uh, very interesting point. Uh, and Kathleen, will the class start again? Uh, we will probably repeat it at some point. I would have to speak to Ray about that and don't have any timing scheduled uh, yet at this point. But um, stay tuned to uh, uh, noahidnations.com and the Torah Learning Center uh, page, and uh, there will undoubtedly be some announcements uh, if we're getting started again on this. So, again, my thanks to everyone, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully have an opportunity to... Uh, uh, learn again. Uh, Mona, you ask if I'm doing any other classes soon. Uh, I'm contemplating doing one on the book of Proverbs uh, and need to get some material prepared for that. Uh, would love to have you all join if uh, I'm able to put that together. And again, I would ask you to stay tuned to uh, uh, the page on Noahide Nations and uh, we're 
able to put that together, then we'll uh, get a notice up there so you're all aware of it. Thank you again, and uh, uh, wish everyone a great week. If you would like me to alert you if, uh, as to future classes, if you could drop me an email at the address on your screen just to let me know your email address. Uh, otherwise, I don't have a way of contacting you uh, because the screen here doesn't show me your email contact information. So uh, just drop me an email and say that you want to uh, be notified of any future classes, and I would be uh, happy to keep you apprised. Uh, and again, thank you all very much, and do have a great week. And Jack, I will turn the microphone uh, over to you. Shalom, everyone, and Shavuot Tov. Hope everybody can hear okay.